All right, good morning. So we have Jeff, the dude, with us today. And um, I just want to start with an introduction, a little bit about your background, Jeff. Um, it is interesting. You said you started with um, engineering and then it led you to nursing, but everything was kind of around um, contract negotiations and throwing in your law school as well. So, yeah, that's right. And Janine, thanks for having me on, and I appreciate your audience uh, bearing with me. So, um, my, my background I started out in the early 90s in engineering school and uh, civil environmental engineer, wanted to uh, help save the world and, and clean up the planet and all that good stuff. And um, realized after about a decade of doing that, that it's more bureaucracy and, and um, this really wasn't what I wanted to do. It didn't make me happy. So I uh, had obtained my law degree while I was working as an engineer. I did that at night school and uh, propelled me into contract negotiations for the company I was working with. I was doing a lot of employment relations issues, um, being pulled into backdoor meetings about you know, how to protect the company from things. And um, so that, that kind of led to a glass ceiling at age 30 and uh, did, didn't really like what I was doing. So I, I went back to nursing school and uh, spent five years in intensive care unit, did get my FNP while I was working in the intensive care unit. And uh, here I am. I, I do primary care right now full time and I do legal work on the side and I've got my podcast and kids and life. Everything's great. So that's awesome. Um, it was a long trek, but it sounded like, you, yeah, you started early. Um, yeah, no. right. School. Yeah, just been a, it's been one thing right to another. And, and my philosophy of life is if you're not happy with something, you got to make the change. Um, if you sit back and wait for somebody, nobody's going to do it for you. So I, I hear excuses all the time why people aren't happy. And I, and I see nothing but solutions around them. So that's, that's very true. Okay. So the first question um, that I have for you is about um, non-compete clauses, whether you should sign or not sign. And I guess mileage and time if you sign, if that, that's something you want to add in there. Sure. Yeah. The, the, the big picture with non-competes is that there's three factors that you need to be aware of. And some contracts are poorly written because they're done by HR people and they just copy and cobble them up from previous and don't really understand what they're doing. The, the three components to any non-compete relates to the time of limitation, the, the geographic scope of limitation, and then the scope of practice, as in, as in what are they limiting you from doing, your, your work product that you're doing. And so it really comes down to those three. When, when somebody says, I don't ever sign a non-compete, I look at them and say, you might be very well missing a great opportunity. There's, there's great opportunities out there with non-competes. There's great opportunities with non-competes. It comes down to what you as an individual are willing to live with and being smart about that and, and committing to that. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody says, I never signed one, eh, whatever, dude, you can kind of do that, but you, you might be missing out on the best opportunity you ever could have had. The, the time um, limitation tends to be the one that, that kind of carries across the country. Anywhere between a year and two years is about what I see pretty typical. Um, the longer the time, you use the other two factors to uh, counterbalance that. So if I have somebody that says, I want a two-year non-compete, I'll say, that's fine. You can have a two-year non-compete, but instead of a five-mile radius, I'm going to a one-mile radius. Mm -hmm. 
instead of uh, scope of acting as a nurse practitioner in any field, I'm going to limit it to acting in adolescent uh, behavioral health. Okay, so you narrow down the scope so that you can go work with, with adults or you can go work with pediatrics, but that way it's very, very narrow. The, um, the more broad three of the terms are, the problem is, is that it opens you up to not being able to, to functionally find another job. So you have to look at your geographic location and you have to evaluate if I were to leave this company, where could I work? And if the answer is nowhere, you don't sign that agreement. Okay. Okay. If it's, I've got 10 other opportunities that fall outside of the scope of that non-compete and I know three of them well, and they would hire me today. I'm not nearly as concerned about signing a non-compete. So it really is very specific to your location. Okay. And then it's always good to have someone else look over it if you possibly can and then renegotiate too, right? Yeah, I, I would always try to renegotiate. It's their opening, it's their opening bid. It's, it, it, there's no personal, they're, they're, they won't take it personally if, and, and be offended if you come back and say, no, that's too broad. We need to tighten that up. And, it, and usually they'll say no. <laughs> and then my question is always, this is my tip right here. If anybody gets anything out of contract negotiation 101, it's asking them what their concern is. If you can ask them, well, why are you concerned about that limitation? And if they can't answer it, then there's your, there's your cue to just say, well, then why are we even doing this? Let's mm -hmm. just get rid of that whole provision. Because if you're not really concerned about it, then why are you trying to limit me from a potential that nobody's even worried about today? Okay. Now, I want to go into the Sunshine Act and okay. whether or not large organizations have the right to restrict or not allow providers to do like pharma dinners after hours um, just to dictate their life, you know, when there's not really uh, um, state law that requires that. So to be honest with you, I don't know what the federal law is on that. But my, my rule of thumb is this, if somebody's trying to buy your affections, chances are it's probably unethical. You know, so I, I don't even go there, to be honest with you. If if somebody says, hey, I got this vacation, I got these extra tickets to the, the local basketball game, or I've got, you know, this this awesome fishing trip we're going to send you on, and you don't have any obligation to us, bull, there, there's going to be something that they're going to want from you in the future. So don't even go there. It's not worth the, the, the perception of, of doing something immoral or unethical. The State Nurse Practice Act, almost every license, and not even, not even just nursing, but any licensing body will have a provision in their licensing rules that says that if you are perceived to be unethical or have a violation of what's, what's called moral turpitude, um, they can yank your license for that alone. Mm -hmm. So there's an expression in the state boards that if you're doing something shady, they could probably pull your ticket and make you go away. So don't don't even go there. So I, I don't even worry about sunshine laws. It doesn't even that doesn't affect me. So then, if you're just if they're just offering dinner while while they're giving education about then, then that's legitimate. Yeah. So the, the the goal there is that they're not compensating you as much as they are um, giving you what's called a de minimis fringe or a de minimis benefit. De minimis means of small value, and I think the number is like around fifteen or twenty bucks per the statute. 
Okay. And I haven't gone back to look it up in years. I, I've read it once a long time ago and I never went back because I never violate it. So it's not a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a dinner or if somebody brings your office lunch and they have you sign the little clipboard that you took the lunch, um, then it gets reported and it goes to a database and they, they keep track of you and it's, it is what it is. But, you know, your free lunch occasionally, not that big a deal. They're, they're coming, they're talking to you, they're giving you information. So it's kind of a, a quid pro quo, but not of concern. Okay. Take your, take your free lunch, take your free dinner. Right. And, and that's it. But don't take anything bigger than, than a, a meal. Okay. And then why do you think that um, MPs aren't um, listed on the Sunshine Act? You know, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of things where we just haven't progressed where we're, we're found to be equals. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably just slipping through the cracks. I think it'll probably get amended when it's a big enough deal that they'll add it to it. But until there's an, a reason to go amend the law, that's not, we're not substantial enough for them to make a change. Not yet. Not yet. We're working on it. Okay. Now, would you mind comparing and uh, contrasting 1099 versus uh, the W-2, um, like a ballpark price uh, per hour? Um, what, what do you think that is? So it, it per hour really depends upon what you're doing. So you guys are in the mental health world. Um, you guys pull a lot more <laughs> per hour than, than typical family practice people. Um, and, and across the nation, it's, it greatly varies per hour. So I'm not even going to touch that one, but I can give you a ballpark of like what you should be factoring your, your salary to compensate for the expense that you have. For those listeners that aren't familiar with 1099 or for those of your followers that aren't familiar, 1099 is that you are a contractor. Mm-hmm. Okay. A contractor is not an employee. An employee, there's certain rights that you get by statute and by laws as an employee that you do not get as a 1099 contractor. So a, a, an employee will get things like half of your taxes paid for to Social Security. Um, you'll get um, benefits if the company's big enough. It's mandated that you have to get benefits. Um, you get um, certain rights with um, unemployment compensation. So if you get laid off or terminated without cause, you can go get unemployment. Uh, Workers' compensation kicks in as well. So there's a bunch of things that are nice to have as an employee, but because of that, your value, total value that you get in your pocket goes down. Now, as a 1099 contractor, you are your own boss. And that's the hardest thing to get across to people because they still think that their employer, quote unquote, is the boss. They're really not. They're just saying, you fill a seat here and you do the work that you need to do and then they get paid and then they cut you a slice of it. But you have to cover all of those benefit type costs that I just ex- just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So for example, your health care costs are not going to be part of the benefit package through an employer if you're a 1099. So you have to come up with your own costs for your health care. You have to come up with your um, taxes, your Social Security SSI tax, which is about 12.5% in that range. So you have extra taxes that you have to pay. Six of it usually gets paid by your employer if you're an employee. Right. So there's 6% of your salary right there that you didn't really realize that you have to compensate for. Any of your um, costs of accounting and taxes that you have to file. So now it gets more complex. You have to hire an accountant instead of just doing uh, TurboTax. You might have a thousand bucks in an accountant every year. So that's another cost that gets thrown in that you should be compensated for that. 
um, all of the benefit that your employer would have would have for you being a 1099. In other words, they don't pay your unemployment. They don't pay an insurance insurance premium for that. So you're saving them a percentage of their of their profits. Some of that should go to you. So the the big picture here is what's that magic multiplier. And, and it depends on where you are and it depends on your overhead, but on average, you're looking at around a one and a half to a 2.0 multiplier. So if you think that you want to take home $100,000, which is probably low for most of your listeners, but let's just use that for math. Mm-hmm. That means your 1099 annual contract cost should be around $150,000 to $200,000. Oh, wow. That's a big jump. Okay. So, and that's because of all of the costs that are associated with running a a small business because that's what you are now. Yes. Okay. And you're saving them a ton of money because they don't pay benefits. They don't pay insurance. It's a, it's a hundred percent tax write-off and you're one for them. So it's, it's a tax write-off. So there's a lot of benefit of understanding the business side to it. Now they're going to try to say, oh no, we only pay our NPs 110 and we'll go up to 120 for you to be a, a 1099. You're getting ripped off. That's not enough of a multiplier. You're going to make less money. Okay. At the end of the year, when you pay all the stuff and your taxes and all the interest and insurance and all the stuff that you have to not interest, but all the other stuff that's associated with you running your own business, you're going to be less than 100. So you you actually see the 1 to 2.0 multipliers often. That's what you see as the norm. 1.5 to 2, yes. 1.5 to 2, okay. Yep. That's awesome. Okay. So it, it just shows that if you go into a company and they say, we want you as a 1099 and they come in and give you five grand more, they know, they, they know what they're going to save. They're taking advantage of you. So that tells you two things. One, that they're shady. And two, do you really want to work there? Because if, if they're that shady with trying to take advantage of you, what are they doing with their billings? What are they doing with uh, incident two? Are they overcharging? Are they using your NPI number inappropriately? Because sometimes you don't know what they're doing with it. Wow. So it can be scary. So you want to make sure you're dealing with a good organization. If they're not willing to negotiate to become reasonable on your 1099, to be honest with you, I wouldn't even deal with them. This is really good advice. So what do you think about... Um, effing, uh, working inside. We spoke briefly about this. We had a really yep. interesting take on it that made a lot of sense. Yep. And, and this is a hot topic, um, especially in Ohio where I'm, where I practice because, um, the, the current, and I could go on and do a whole hour on this. So cut me off if I go long, please. Okay. My, my current philosophy is that if you are a newer grad FNP, you have zero business doing psych other than the basic family practice related depression or anxiety or a little insomnia, that kind of stuff. And that's about where you live. If you get into a dual diagnosis, which we were never taught about in school and we didn't do a clinical on, um, we shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be billing for counseling services, which I see some people doing and I want to smack them. Th- those things are, are out of the scope of what we were trained in our certification Okay. okay. Now it comes a hiccup because prior to 2010, when the consensus model, if you guys don't know what the consensus model is, please look it up and know it and understand what it is. The consensus model was to streamline education and certification and accreditation and all this different stuff. Licensure. They call it LACE, L-A-C-E. And it tried to do that, but it really didn't work well. So the, the problem was is that if you were trained before 2010, your education 
was um, your education was generalized and broad in an FNP program. Okay. So what that did for you was it provided the opportunity to go do things like psych, acute care, and expand beyond what the current educational model allows us to do. So you have to ask yourself, when did that FNP get educated? What was their background? What was their education and training? You can't just categorize and say, oh, all FNPs shouldn't do psych because they very well may have been trained to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's the difficult part, right? So right. you really you have to find out when, when, where, and what did they do. Now, if you were 20 years ago an FNP and you got your education, but then you trained in mental health to do dual diagnosis per Ohio's uh, state law, that's still within your scope. Okay. But the way they want to change it now is they want to jam everybody into getting dual certifications and, and all that good stuff when maybe it's really not required mm-hmm. for every. So it, it's kind of a case by case basis. But if you've been trained after 2010, my, my gut is saying you shouldn't be doing psych if you're family nurse practitioner or adult Jero or any of the others. Okay. And then some of the state, um, some of the state scopes of practice still have that placed in so that if you were trained before 2010, you may have already been properly trained enough to work both. So the, the idea is that, but before the consensus model, it wasn't at all delineated as to who really was mental health, especially with respect to family practice, because some family practice NPs did get psych and mental health training. After the consensus model, it's pretty much a no-go. You, you really didn't get mental health because, as an example, if I was trained in adult gero, I wouldn't be able to do acute care, okay? Or if I went and did adult gero and family practice, I wouldn't be able to do acute care. So then I have to get a, a adult gero, family practice, and acute care, but then I wouldn't be able to do PEDS. So there's no generalist. Mm-hmm. I, I'd have to get four or five certifications if I wanted to treat everybody. Right. All right. So that the fracturing of the NPs from the consensus model has has it was intended to clarify the issue, and it's actually made it worse. Mm-hmm. And the states are pointing to the saying, "Oh, well, we just follow the consensus model." So unfortunately, when you read that, and I encourage everybody to go do that because it's important to understand it, um, or at least understand that it leaves holes. Okay. It's oh. not an easy question to answer. You know, I understand. <laughs> I understand. At least it just, it's, it's a point of view of it and everybody can, can uh, draw their own conclusion, keep moving forward. That's, that's right. And, and if, you, if you are in practice, it really comes down to a question of whether you think you are at risk. Um, you know, there's, there's things where you look at it and say, if I follow every single rule all the time, I'm never going to be able to function. Mm-hmm. As a provider, so you have to evaluate what's low risk and what's not. So you know, if you're doing a, you know a little bit of mental health, but you've got guidance from people and it's right there, you know, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm not saying to do it, but you know, you have to weigh the value of your position in that organization. If you say no, they might find somebody else. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a tough place to be as an FNP. And you have to also look at your license as well in that That's state. Right. Yes. Yep. And every state's different. So just come out and say, you know, this state does it this way and that state does it that way. Most of them, if you follow the philosophy of if I was trained in school to do this, chances are your state will allow you to do it. But you really need to be careful because I know Florida, for example, they've got weird rules on, on uh, controlled substances. 
Mm-hmm. So even though in Ohio I can do schedule twos, in Florida I might not be able to. So you have to be really careful specific to the state. Okay. So um, <laughs> we're going to go a little bit into contracts. Um, so the first question around contracts would be, is it possible to set a maximum number of patients per day in your contract? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That doesn't mean it will happen though, right? Yeah, no. So here's the problem is that, that, if it's a piece of paper and it goes in a desk drawer, the value of that document, if you don't hold people accountable, and, and I work off of expectations. So your contract is outlining the expectations of your commitment to each other for the next one to two, sometimes three years, which I don't advise. I just read a contract this morning, three-year contract, and I'm like, don't do it. It's too long. So the, the problem is, is that if you don't get your expectations outlined well, it makes it difficult to come back later when they they kind of encroach upon, you know, if, if 30 a day is your max and they're hitting 28 and you start going to the scheduler and say, look, you can't go above 30. And they say, well, you know, Sam is out for the week and we need you to really pick up the slack this week. And now, now you're seeing 40. And then the next thing you know, Sam comes back from vacation and you're seeing 35 out every day. So it's easy to just pull that out and say, look, we talked about this. If you want me to see more, that's fine. But we didn't have that in the deal. We need to re- renegotiate the price. Okay. Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, and then how common are revenue splits in contracts? Um, They're not that common, to be honest with you. Um, so the, the philosophy of, of and I, I, wish I, I wish they were more common, and I'll explain why. Most revenue splits are more for physicians because they see them as equals. So they share in the pie, right? We're seen more as employees. So you get your salary and maybe a little incentive. So there's not a lot of them that are out there. But if you can get the opportunity to work in your benefit, I wouldn't be afraid of doing a revenue split at all. And it's just so people are aware, that's usually what you, based upon an RVU system. All right. So they, they'll say you see so many patients. Um, Every quarter, um, say it's you know 500 RVUs or patients essentially patient visits in family practice. A, a 99213 comes out to be about a 0.96. That's so about a one RVU. So it's like one visit is an RVU ish. Okay. Um, mental health world's totally different. You guys get extra multipliers and you go based upon time, and so you guys can generate a lot more RVUs than family practice. So if you get your RVUs to a certain number above that you share in the profits is really what it comes down to. Okay. And the RVUs, those are like the the minutes that you you use for that, that um, interaction. Well, it's, it's kind of based on minutes in primary care world. It's based upon um, how you build the CPT code. So the CPT code is the 99213, 99214. Mental health, like I said, you guys got wacky stuff. It's totally different. Um, in, in our world, it, they kind of estimate a 99213 is like a 15-minute visit. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you could do it in one minute if you do all of the things that you're supposed to do to meet the criteria. So it's not time-driven. It's like functional. Like you review so many body systems in the, the H&P. You do so much for the workup. You have so many um, complex issues. You have imaging. You have labs. You have consultations. All those things go into your medical decision making, and then you could come out with what your your CPT code is, and then that equates backdoor into an RVU. Okay. So it's not 
easiest thing to understand. It really isn't. It takes practice. Once you're in it, it makes more sense. So mm-hmm. if you're in school or you're new grad and you're like, I don't understand this stuff, don't worry too much about it. Worry about just seeing the number of people that you need to see. Okay. Um, and then when you do actually see revenue splits, what is more of a fair split? Because some people have talked about this quite a bit in our group. Yeah, there's until you see how productive you are for that practice, you can't really answer that. Okay, so somebody new wants to go in and say, I'm going to get a new deal with, with XYZ practice and they want to give me 50% of the, the profits. That may be a crappy deal. It might be an awesome deal. You don't know what the profits are. So you just don't know until you're there. So it depends on the number of patients you see. It depends on the complexity of your billing that you do. It depends upon the overhead of the practice. It depends. You know, so if, you, if you're in downtown Chicago, you're, you're going to have huge amounts of overhead. Mm-hmm. So your amount of profit split's going to be low because you got this huge overhead. That's probably not going to be a good deal. But if you're in rural Kansas and it's dirt cheap to work there and you're generating huge amounts of revenue, a 50% split might be an awesome deal. Okay. So it's really fact specific. So when I see those questions on the Facebook forums, I'm like, well, it just depends. And I usually don't say anything because it's too hard to explain it in a sentence. So then if someone runs across that as a new grant, um, yeah. just better to maybe ex- if you're going to accept what's offered, but then leave room for a negotiation maybe a year or two later. Exactly what I would do. And so what I would recommend is you would go in with a salary that you feel comfortable with that makes it worth your time to go there and explain to them, I understand that I'm not going to be as productive this year. I'm learning the system. I'm learning your EHR. I'm getting credentialed. I'm seeing, you know, half the patients I probably should be seeing for the first six months. And so, you know, you're not going to be making them any money the first year. You just won't. I mean, at least the first six to eight months, and Mm -hmm. then you might it up and you'll probably break them even. So if you know that you want a hundred grand a year for year one, that's cool. Next year, you're going to tell them what you want in year two. When you're fully making them money, what salary is it that is reasonable that you want? So if that's 130, you say, look, year one, I'll take a hundred. I get it. I'm taking a $30,000 pay cut from what I think I should be paid when I'm really making you a lot of money. And in year two, we're going to renegotiate the contract And you put this in the contract. Mm -hmm. Year two, we're going to renegotiate the number so that I expect to be close to 130. And that could be a ton of different ways that you get there. Whether it's a base salary of 130, awesome. That works perfect for me because it gets me where I need to be without having to worry about all the billing crap. Right. Probably happen. They'll probably give you a 110 salary and then an incentive program based upon the billings that you did in the year in like the latter half of year one. And you got to make it attainable. That's the hard part, right? So you, you're constantly pushing. If you want to make the money, you got to be pushing. You got to be making the money. You can't sit back and just be complacent. Well, yeah, that first year, you're getting an idea yourself of what you know you're capable of. So by that second year, you can really come back and negotiate. And, and one of the things I encourage all to do is put in the contract that they will give you monthly or at least quarterly reports of your billings, the amount that you bill um, out. Okay. Okay. The, the problem I see when people are negotiating contracts and they come back and say, well, you know, we'll give you an incentive plan based upon what we receive payment on. I tell people, don't do that. Do it based on the billings because it's not your responsibility as the provider to make sure the billing department is doing their job. 
So if you've got a crappy biller and isn't billing things right, or they're dragging their feet, or they're not going after things that get denied, then your receivables could be drastically lower than what the amount of work you are putting in. Okay. Does that make sense? That does make sense. That's huge, actually, because you look at it from a whole different perspective. That's the real perspective of exactly what you're bringing in. That's exactly right. It's your work product. You should be paid for your quality of your work product, not somebody else's failure to do their job. Yeah. There was something else that you said um, before that I thought was a really good point, that as practitioners versus being a regular registered nurse, you are a producer. You're not just kind of um, a worker bee anymore. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the, the philosophy, and it's difficult. So please don't be mad at me, guys, because this is, this, is, this is really, really a different mindset. If you've worked on a floor and you took the salary that was given, or the hourly wage that was told, this is what we pay our RNs on the med surge or RNs in ICU or dialysis. This is your rate. Take it or leave it. We're kind of trained that that's the way it works. And if we don't like that job, we go to a different facility that might pay us a little bit more. But as a provider, when you go in and you have that mindset, you're going to get taken advantage of every time. Because they, are, they know, they're in, the, they're in the mindset of negotiations. And they know that they can get probably 80%, I don't know, I'm making this number up, a large share of RNs to NPs are going to keep that mindset and not understand their value until it's too late. And the first deal is probably not going to be a good one for you because you're kind of just taking what's thrown at you and you're not going to negotiate. And, and they're expecting you to. That's the key that people need to understand is that if you are going to be seen as a provider, they're going to expect you to come back with things in the contract. They're going to expect for you to have problems with the words in the contract. You're not making work for them. That's part of the deal. That's the way it works. So you got to know what you're worth. You got to be able to be willing to go back and say, "Look, I, you know, I'm not willing to take that." And if you start to walk away, and they they let you walk away, you have to look at it as, you know what? If they weren't willing to pay me what I feel I'm worth, when I go to work there and I'm getting my salary every two weeks, and I'm not getting what I think I'm worth, how happy are you going to be? Right. And you're just going to, you're going to get jaded and, and eventually leave anyways, or they're never going to see you as valuable if that's the case now. So they need to recognize that you're, you're a professional, you generate the money for them. And I think that was the point you had brought up. It was that when we were talking in the past, mm-hmm. an RN is an expense to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So you as relatively cheap as possible. Whereas as a provider, you are generating large sums of money, sometimes up, upward of a half a million dollars is some of, some of my specialist NPs that have con- done contract reviews with. Oh, so if you're generating three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year for this organization, there's no reason they can't get you to 120, 130, 140, 180. Okay. Oh, wow. And then I guess it brings down kind of back to what you were saying about new grads. You're going to get in there and do the work. But I still think that though you are in there and you are learning, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to undervalue what you're bringing to the table because you're still generating income. That's true to some extent. Okay. The first year, you're, the first six months, you're, not, you're a loss. You're not making a you're taking up resources, you're taking up office space, you're um, getting credentialed, so you may not be on all of the insurance plans. Mm-hmm. So you might be seeing people for free. 
because your insurance, their insurances might not be, um, you might not have a contract with them with your name on it yet. Mm -hmm. And you may not get paid. Some of them will go retroactive and go back and get that money, but some of them don't. So for the first six months, you're probably going to be a loss. In the second half, you're going to be starting to get in the swing of things and you're going to be making the money in the second half, but you're going to be paying back the loss from the first half. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful when you go in and say, look, I want 130 grand this year as a new grad. They're going to laugh at you because they're going to be like, I, I'm going to lose money on you for the first right. six months. I'm not guaranteed I'm going to make any money off you the second half. So you have to be really careful how you do that. And, and keep in mind too, there's a lot of those RN mentality people out there that are just taking whatever that they get thrown at them. And it's really tainting the pool of, mm -hmm. of salaries. That's more so what I'm speaking to is taking extremely yeah. low figures thinking, well, I have to get my foot in the door. Um, Cause I really, I really feel there should be a standard, even as a new grad specifically coming in and a nurse practitioner where it should be at like maybe 110 or something. Cause you know, you have to get in there and learn. Yes. Well, th there's, there's a bigger debate about that and, and I don't know if we can get into it or not, but the, I agree with you. I think that the number is around six figures. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of 80s out there, people mm -hmm. taking 80s salary contracts, and I'm like, that's too low. It's embarrassingly low. Even, even in a crappy part of the country like Ohio, where our salaries tend to be lower than the rest of the country, 80 grand is too low. So mm -hmm. you're a professional, you're a moneymaker. If we can change the, the mindset of everyone, our salaries as a collective will go up 50 grand. Yeah. Because they're more than enough money to do that. The problem is, is that I can't guarantee that the people coming out of school that have, you know, they're, they're single moms or single dads, they got four kids, they got bills, they got, you know, loans now, they got to take whatever they can get. Yeah. And, and they are. And so, you know, it's a catch 22. So I think with time, I think the more that we have professionals that are being um, mindful of the fact that we generate the revenue, I think that you're going to see that that number is going to continue to grow exponentially. I definitely hope so. Um, Cause I, I've thought about everything that you were saying. Um, and I agree, you know, people do have to do what they need to do to get out there when they have families and just life takes over. You have bills to pay. Um, I think too, because of groups like the one that I have and the awesome podcast that you do, and there are other groups that I've seen that just kind of talk about this, just getting the word out there, just to be mindful of it, you know, right. and spread the word, you know, and, and educate yourself. You know, that's, that's the key. Right. And that, and that's, that's a big part of it too, is that, that um, the schools unfortunately are not educating us on this side of things. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's a problem. The educational system could improve. I, I really wish, um, I, I would love for, you know, not me, but someone like me to, to go and um, formulate a curriculum for the schools on business and contract. And MDs and DOs get a class in their programs on how to contract, insurance, all the legal side, the medical legal, even on how to handle saving their money so if they get divorced, how to protect it. Sick? Doesn't that make you sick? That's but crazy, yeah. Here we as NPs are so naive that we just are like dumped out into the world with an RN mindset and um, it's just ripe for getting taken advantage of. That's, that's interesting to say it that way. And because I also think you have to have a business mindset, even if you plan to work salary 
and you're fine with that. That's what you want to do. And you decide for extra money, maybe you want to do a private practice. You still have to have that entrepreneurial, just kind of business mindset. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I was listening to a um, continuing education from AAMP. I, I belong to AAMP, and I have I do a lot of their their free CES. Um, and one of them said an intrapreneur was the word. And I remember making fun of it on my podcast, but it really made sense. And I've never thought about it. I, I, with that word, I've never thought about it. But my philosophy is if you are an employee, you have to go to work today and treat today as your interview for tomorrow. And that's the mindset that will propel you forward in your career. And if you don't, if you feel complacent and you go to work and just say, oh, I got to get through today, you're going to slack. You're not going to push as hard. You're not going to see as many patients or you're going to say no to things that maybe you should be saying yes to. Mm -hmm. And so if you work today as though you, your job depends on it, that tomorrow you're gone and today is your interview, then you're going to do 10 times better than everybody else in that office. That's a good mindset. It's, most, it's constant motivation, self-motivation. It really has to be. And, and we have to be that much better because it's already expected that we're not as good, that we're not as knowledgeable, which I think is false. But we're fighting that stigma. So we have to be that good. We have to think like that. Okay. So um, continuing with another contract question, um, wondering if um, as a contract employee, can you ask for extra pay to offset the cost of uh, like purchasing your own health insurance when you were mentioning with the 1099s earlier? Yeah, you can, but I wouldn't even separate it out that way because then it, and they know exactly where you're at. So you can hide it easier. That's the benefit of doing a 1099. So if you go into a 1099, they don't care what all your costs are. They just want to know what the cost, total cost is at the end of the year to them. Okay. So if yeah. it's 150000 for them to pay you to be there, they don't care. They know that you're a lump sum cost that's going out the door and they get to write the whole thing off. It's none of their business what you do with that money. So what I would do is this. Mm -hmm. If I was a 1099 contractor, my wife, her insurance uh, or, or her, the insurance that she has available through her job, we'd be getting it through her job. Mm -hmm. And I would negotiate in, say, well, for my, all my costs associated with me to do this job, it's this price. And if they said, well, what's your breakdown of that? I said, none of your business. That's for me to be able to do all the stuff. That's the insurance, right there. Okay. All that stuff. I wouldn't even break it down for them. It's none of their business. Okay. I like that answer the best. <laughs> yeah, it's none of the business. It's the 1099. So just that's go the in there basically knowing what your numbers are. How, you know you know how you got to, you know what the, the final number you need in order to survive basically working as a 1099. That's what you need to know. And get the salary that you pay yourself. Now, keep in mind, as a 1099, you get some pretty sweet deals as far as taxes are concerned. So you get to write off the expense of you driving to the office. Whereas an employee, you cannot do that because that's your principal place of business. As a 1099, your principal place of business is wherever you say it is. It's my house. So all your mileage that you drive in your car for work, to and from, if you work multiple offices, if you work at nursing homes and go all over the place, all that mileage you get to write off. Okay. Your cell phone, because you're on call. You get to write that off. You should be doing that anyways. But usually, as, as an individual, you have to meet your um, standard deduction exceeded, and almost nobody does that. So it's, everybody says, oh, you can write that off on your taxes. But in reality, most people can never meet the threshold mm -hmm. for individual tax. 
But as a company, you get to write a bunch of stuff off. Your cost of hiring your accountant is a tax write-off. Your attorney is a tax write-off. Um, any supplies that you buy, tax write-offs. If you need a laptop, it's a tax write-off. Now, you have to be careful. You can't write it all off in year one. You have to do the proper de depreciation schedules so that you can't just write everything off in year one. Now, but, I know you would talk with the CPA about that, but is there a cap or anything to what you can write off? Because you mentioned commercials. No, but if you, so here's the way it was taught to me in law school. Your tax write-offs are your opening bid <laughs> to the IRS. So they don't really care about your tax write-offs. If you claim all of your income, the rest is negotiable. Huh. Yep. So, it, but, but income, if you don't report your income, that's a, that's a huge deal. You'll get taxes, penalties, you'll get people with guns showing up at your house, right? But if you just do your deductions and you say, well, I think I should get deduction of my home office, which is so many square feet, and they want to dispute that, they can come out with a measuring tape and measure it. Okay. Because then so it's, it's just your burden, it's like your burden of proof, basically. You have to have your spreadsheet showing everything, itemized, whatever, if they question it. And your, yep. And your accountant will walk you through all that. Yep. Okay. Okay. And then um, I have a couple questions about full practicing authority. If you are even aware um, of of like a pencil Pennsylvania, um, possibly pass an FPA. Yep. In Ohio too. Yep. We got one going as well right now in, in the house. Okay. Do you have any do you have any idea or uh, estimates of when you think that might actually kick through? Uh, heaven only knows. And so, you know, I don't know. The, the state politic level is just so quirky. For anybody to say for sure that it's going to go through or not is, is they're lying to you. Right. Ohio right. is um, a simple law. All they did was they took the existing law and crossed out everywhere they said the word collaborative agreement and kind of just killed all of it out of the, the existing law. So it's clean. There's no omnibus added stuff in that people have to debate. It truly is, do we want full practice or not in the state of Ohio? And so um, we have a very strong uh, physician advocacy group that doesn't want us to do that. So, And we're kind of in a lame duck this, this time of year anyway. So I'm not sure Ohio's is going to get done. I think they're using it more as a political football to say, look, you turned it down and you guys, um, you're, you're letting you know, old people die in the streets. <laughs> because yeah. they're not getting primary care. Yeah. Um, so I think I think they're doing it more for that reason. But but I hope it does. I really do. I you know I I just think there's a lot of people that that um, have an entrepreneurial spirit that give great care and are ready to start their own practice. And there's no reason to stifle the competition um, by making us have a contract that says six months from now somebody's going to review my charts. Ten of them. Six months from now, that that doesn't protect safety. You know, that's not protection of the public. Yeah, it's more punitive, uh, micromanaging kind of. Well, it's not even that. It's just it's no. purely about protectionism. It's it's purely about stifling the competition of of uh, good nurse practitioners. Or yeah, MDs, the physician groups are are. It's just to keep us in our place. So, because I've I've seen a lot of I've seen some descriptive requirements where um you have to every i think i saw one for every month in texas you have to have like a face-to-face -face. and then like after a year then you can like skype it or zoom it or something um, yeah I'm, I'm not familiar with their requirements but they're all different i know um 
I want to say Connecticut has it where you have um, limited full practice. You know, so you basically have a collaborative for a certain period of time. I think it's like four years and it's pretty, pretty heavy oversight. And then they, they, uh, then you can go up in your own practice. North Carolina just passed a law that said that they have full practice, but it has to be a signature from a physician that will allow you to break away and go get full practice. So, I mean, talk about oppressive, in my opinion, talk about a backhanded compliment. Right. Full practice, but you have to beg a physician to sign the release. How many physicians do you think are going to go out willingly signing those? Yeah, that's, that's going to be a fight. You're going to have to really get in good with somebody. Yeah. And what's their incentive? Yeah. I mean, they're going to be paying them, which doesn't sound kosher any either. So, yeah, the medical community is going to just come down on them. I mean, they'll be ostracized. There's no one in their right mind is going to do that. I think maybe they'll find someone because there are some doctors who are cool working on like NPs and things. I've met them going along the way. Yeah, there's a lot of things that really value what we do, and so I'm not I'm not saying there aren't, but I think that when it comes down to putting your neck out on the line mm-hmm. uh, for an NP and it puts you out, out there, not just being proactively like promoting, you know, the NPs are great. We work great together. You know, that that's, that's the political statement. All of them are going to say, mm-hmm. or most, but when it actually comes down to them releasing someone, man, I, I just, I find that hard to believe that they're going to be willing to do that. Oh, so it's, it's like, um, they'll still, they'll still be held accountable because they signed that release. No, I don't think that would. That's the case. I think it's just that the medical community around them are going to be like, "Oh, dude, why'd you do that?" Uh, okay, <laughs> I got you. You're, you're buying into the enemy type of mentality, right? So their buddies will all, you know, if you're a specialist, you're not going to get any referrals anymore, or you're going to lose referrals, or you just you might not get credentialed at the local hospital. Okay, yeah, that that does sound impressive. Okay, I didn't think of it in that way. Um, Wow. Okay. So do you think the, this is, these are more just general questions around the ANCP um, and like preceptor type questions. Okay. Um, and so do you think the ANCC will force NP schools to find preceptors for their students? ANCC, no. Mm-hmm. Um, ANCC doesn't have any, they're, they're part of the ANA. Um, they're, they're owned by the ANA. Uh, so they, they don't really have a dog in that fight. The, the people that mandate the, the um, accreditation for NP schools are two. There's the CCNE and the ACEN. Mm-hmm. Those are the two governing bodies that do it. Most of the schools, the lion's share of them are with CCNE. Okay. Um, the ACEN I want to say is related to the ANA, but it's a different different branch and it's not affiliated with ANCC. Okay. So the ANCC is really just a credentialing body for the individuals, not for the schools. Okay. So if you go back to the to, to the consensus model. There's licensure. What's let's see, ACE, uh, accreditation, which would be the accreditation of the schools, certification, and education. Right. So the L is licensing. That's the state. The A accreditation is of the schools. That's the CCNE and the ACEN. Okay. Mm-hmm. The um, C is your certification, which would be ANCC or AANP. Okay. And then the E is your education, which is kind of goes back to the same thing as the, the accreditation. It's the same group of people that do that. 
So here's the, the trick, the problem, the, the, the dirty little secret that people don't want to recognize. Our schools are governed by the CCNE. The CCNE, essentially, essentially the CCNE, not the ACEN is out there, but most of them are CCNE. CCNE is owned by the AANC, okay? The AANC is an organization made up of all of the deans for the nurse, nurse practitioner schools. So the, nurse, the deans of the nursing schools are accrediting themselves. That's a racket. <laughs> That's a racket. So, and then there's not only is that the case, but the CCNE belongs to other organizations that accredit the accrediting bodies, okay, which are made up of the schools, and they all pay pay for the services off of the backs of the tuition of the students. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Over and over again. There's like three deep. I went three deep and I'm like, I can't believe this. I can't do anymore. I'm, I'm going to keep going and finding more and more of these. I'm going to get more and more pissed off. Yeah. Because we're just paying tuition so that these organizations can pay giant expenditures of, of accreditation fees to these accrediting bodies made up of the deans that get a kickback for doing it at every level. So they're making more and more money individually as individuals. <laughs> That's a whole different conversation. I know, and I didn't mean to go there. But the, the, point, <laughs> <laughs> the point being is that the foxes are guarding the hen house. Yeah. So there's no incentive for them to mandate to provide clinical sites because it's work. And it limits the number of students that they can accept. Because if you don't have enough uh, preceptors to, to, to accommodate for the seats in the classroom, then you got to decrease the number of seats in the classroom to the number of preceptors. And so not to say online, online programs are bad. That is not at all what I'm saying because there's a lot of decent online programs. Mm -hmm. The problem with online programs is that I can have, in theory, an infinite number of seats of students. And if I do that, I could just make a ton of money selling the same course curricula that's already pre-made over and over and over again without having to pay big salaries to teachers, okay? The problem is, is that when it comes to mandating clinical sites, they're fighting it because they can't provide 700 clinical placement sites all the way across the country. That would just class. open a can of worms for them to be to yeah. forced to do that. Yeah, unfortunately, we, we kind of opened that can. Um, a group of us uh, in an organization that is no longer able to be named because we were shut down by AANP. Okay. <laughs> We worked with Shea Sawyer with the Sawyer Initiative. Um, right. was was our, tre our secretary for the organization. And um, we're still subject to being named to a new organization. We're working on a new one. But Shay uh, started the process of exposing all of this. And um, we, we kind of picked up where he left off and continued the fight. And we just got the standards for the CCNE modified so that it, as of January 1st of 2019, clinical sites for CCNE accredited schools have to provide them. Yes. Schools got to starting in January. Yeah, I saw that. I saw it. I think there's a video I even um, just putting you into just how to present that to your school when they're not wanting to just yet. Um, offer. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen the video, but there's there's plenty of information out. There's a lot of a lot of people that are like 
doing that. They're going to their school and they're saying, nope, yep, you, we just have to kind of give you a list and it's up to you to do it. Bull, that's lies. Those are complete lies. It's been, been verified multiple times by people that aren't involved in our group that have posted on Facebook that they've done the same verification with, with copies and pastes of emails and things. So um, come January, if your school is not providing your clinical experience for you, then there is a process that Shay and probably the rest of the guys in our group will help develop the follow through of what you need to do to get your school investigated. Okay. You got to be careful though. I mean, because you've got a year invested, the last thing you want to do is get kicked out for being, you know, a troublemaker. You're going to be a whistleblower, you know, they need protection. Right. So that's the problem. If you look at your school's handbook, you know, any unbecoming behavior or unprofessionalism, you can get booted out of the program. And there goes your, you know, 25, 30 grand for the year. So it's a tricky position as a student. It's, you know, it's kind of like taking that low salary. You got to be, you got to be a little conservative. You don't, you don't want to ruin your opportunity. But that being said, we got to have some people that are willing to say, you know, look, I, I can't even graduate because of you guys, it's time to turn these people in. Because, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. When I think about that, too, it's like you wonder it's part of, well, they just didn't care. You know, they just don't care. And you're spending that money, then you have to sit out a, a quarter, you know, then you're putting more money in to repeat something that you could have finished, yeah. you know, had it been properly set up in the first place. Right. Doing the things that they should have been doing all along. And I think to go on that point is it's not even that they don't care. It's that they are actually making money off of you being delayed. Mm-hmm. So it's a vested interest in thro- slowing things down. Absolutely. So, I didn't want to say that, but that's where it was going. Yep. Yeah, we'll say it. yeah, it's even more nefarious than that. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not the educators themselves. And I get pushback from people on Facebook all the time. I've got emails. I've got hate mail from people that say, I'm an educator. And what do you think? We have piles of money in this corner of our office. Just, you know, we're rolling in it. I don't think it's those people. And I don't even know if it's the deans of the schools as much as it is the provost and the schools themselves saying, look, we have decreased enrollment across the board because people are realizing they don't need a college degree to go work because most of them are useless. And they need to generate revenue any way they can. And this is a way that they're putting pressure on the nursing schools to do this. So I think that they're in a really tough spot. And I feel for them because a lot of them are really good people, really care, teach well, and do the best they can. And they take what we're saying as you stink. And that's not at all what we're saying. Yeah. So we have to, we have to, be, we have to really recognize that. that you know, we're not trying to put any professor down, but the, the ones that are – hardcore go university that are just doing everything they can to make themselves look good for the university really, really is doing a disservice for the profession. Yeah. I kind of have a gut feeling that when some schools, some of the schools see, they saw that money to be made and they saw that you could buy your way in. And so they jumped on that train and a lot of went out spiraled out of control and and we added um since i've been an np we've added almost one-fifth the number of nps in the last couple years Mm. and that's not helping the ability of us to negotiate because not only are they adding nps that really shouldn't be nps because the threshold for entry is very low by design or it uh it just saturates most of the, the markets yeah so it's a double-edged sword. We have to we have to slow things down, and and I think getting clinical placement is a big first step for that. I think the next best thing we could do would be to 
increase admissions criteria across the board for every type of advanced practice nurse. Because right now you have to have, a, in a lot of schools that are online, if you have a 3.0 or a 3.2 in your bachelor's and two letters of recommendation, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. That's a really low threshold for entry. All right. Um, like I said, I know this could go on. So I could talk. I'm going to end it here. But uh, I wanted you to uh, point people in the direction of your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I am the NP dude. That's T-H-E-N-P-D-U-D.com. You can go to my website. I've got a podcast there. I've got about 140 some free episodes. So you guys can go peruse those. Most of them are medical, legal, and background. Um, I hit some hot topics of the day in the past two years. Some of them are a little dated, but um, so skip those ones and just go to the ones you want to listen to. There is a search box so you can kind of find the the thing you want to talk about. If you want to listen to malpractice issues or uh, tort liability or contract negotiations, those are all available there and uh, it's all free. So go enjoy. All right. Thank you so much for your time again. Yeah, absolutely, Janine. It's been fun. And uh, if you guys, if your listeners have any questions, they can, they can send them to you, get them to me, and I'll get it back to you. All right. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.